RadioInfluence.com. Welcome into another edition of Rush the Field College Football Podcast alongside veteran coach and scout Chris Landry. I'm Scott Seidenberg. And Chris, today, as we record this on a Tuesday, was Alabama's Pro Day. And if that's not the scene to be seen in college football and pro football, I don't know what is. Because the guest list was a who's who of football power powerhouse names, Chris. Absolutely. Had uh, like eight GMs, number of head coaches. Uh, Bill Belichick was there, of course, good friends at the Nick Saban and wearing an Alabama shirt. And, <laughs> um, you know, Bill, Bill dresses light. So uh, if it's a little cool in there, you know, but no, it was it's a, listen, when you put 22 guys in, you know, uh, drafted high in the last couple of years, um, you got a lot of good players there. And, you know, Led by a Quinnen Williams, but uh, uh, you've got one of the best backs in the country that um, is is you know really exciting. Had a good workout as well. So they listen. They just they're loaded with players. They're great with you know the pro day, and it's very pro run like as a college program. There are a number number. I mean, a lot of ex Alabama assistant coaches that are now assistant coaches in the NFL. Mm. And so you have a lot of those people that are very familiar with. And, you know, for the pro day, because I get asked this a lot, and this is, I think, important. For the pro day, what's most important is that the coaches, the scouts go in and get the numbers to fill out any numbers that are missing from the combine and get any updates on, you know, weight gain or things like that. But what it really is most important for is the coaches, the assistant coaches in the NFL go to these pro days and they spend time with these players. A lot of time. They may have dinner with them the night before. Um, they put them on the board. They get to spend a lot of time. You may say, well, wait, don't they do that? The combine? They don't have as much time. We talk about that right at the combine. It's short 15 minutes and you're gone. And this is really good to get a lot of time with these guys. And then you can put them with you get involved in a little bit of a workout uh, where you can kind of put them through some drills and do some things extra. Um, and uh, Saban tells his guys, Coach comes over and, you know, wants to run a drill with you. You need to do that. You know, I mean, so it's not like in some places where it's just all scripted and you don't get as much out of it. So you, when you have the most players that are put into the NFL and you have the best run operation, tremendous facilities to do it all in, all sorts of contacts, um, you're able to go in and get all the right information that you need to. And that's why it's the, as you put it, the pro day of all pro days. Yeah. 77 players drafted in the last 10 years. 11 Alabama prospects went to the combine last month. So uh, Alabama looking to send another crop of talent to the NFL. When it comes to a pro day like this, it, does Nick Saban run this? Does his assistants run this? Or as you mentioned, former Alabama assistants that are now in the NFL that are coming to watch these guys. Do, and you say a coach can go up to a player and say, hey, I want you to run this drill. Who is organizing and running this pro day? OK, so um, the strength and conditioning staff runs it with the aid of 
uh, of designated scouts. Here's how pro days normally go. Uh, when you go on a pro day, you kind of divvy it up. You know, I get there, I'm there early and, you know, a guy from, you know, the Cowboys and the Broncos are there. Hey, look, um, Hey, Scott, how about you take care of this? I'll take it literally done. We work with the strength and conditioning staff to set things up the way we want their stations. So it's all done very combine like. So it's very organized. So uh, players come in, they stretch, they vertical, they get measured and weighed. They do the vertical jump. They do the bench press. So it's all there, and it's all done kind of in the big weight room. So you can see them measured. You can see them weighed, and you've got, you know, a scout that will call out the numbers and do that. Then you go and do the vertical jump, and then you go do the broad jump, and then you go do the bench press, and everybody can see that and, and is all kind of crowded around there. And then, then you go out into the workout area uh, where you will run. You'll run the the different drills, and so that is organized. Um and once you you have the 40 marked off, you just have a starter and you have obviously everybody at the 40 yard line to to get the mark, which is the only way to really time a guy. You know, when you see it at the combine, you see people from the stands. Well, those times are useless. Yeah. You got to be right there. And so you get you get that. So it's organized by the strength and conditioning staff in conjunction with the scouts that are there. And you normally, you know, you you have it um, kind of a organized and usually um you know an area scout that's very familiar with the program will be involved but there's obviously when the the head coach has kind of the carte blanche of overseeing everything nick's out nick's out there in his you know argyle sweater he's not just sweating (laughs) he's not drawing a sweat now he's not doing anything hey come on guys he's not really involved like a team he lets he lets other people do that but it all starts from him. In other words, the 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 ability to do everything that you want, which, to be honest, everybody pretty much does the same thing. The only things that you get is with these quarterbacks sometimes that it's just kind of all scripted, you know, with with this and that. That that's more scripted and done by the agent. But um, in Alabama, no, it's done by Alabama, and so they do things the way. Football people want it, not how some agent's gonna gonna dictate it. We're gonna talk more about Nick Saban coming up a little later on when we get into our state of the program of LSU because I want to get into the situation involving uh, uh, you know regarding his hiring at LSU and also his departure from LSU and you were very closely involved because of your tenure there um, with the Tigers. So we'll get into that during our state of the program coming up in just a couple of minutes. But the other headline that we found out here was that Tate Martell, the transfer quarterback to Miami, Chris was granted his NCAA waiver request. So he is eligible to play immediately. He is already participating in spring practice, and now he's in the mix to win that starting job, along with Jaron Williams and, and Nikasi Perry. And I, I find it hard to fathom a situation that it's not Tate Martell as the starting quarterback for Miami. But what I want to know is, has this waiver request idea become a joke over the past couple of years because we are in an era as you've mentioned before of college football free agency where these kids are dictating where they want to go and where they want to play even after they've committed and played at another school 
Justin Fields gets his waiver granted. He's going to start this year for the Buckeyes. Tate Martell, he gets his waiver granted. Now he's going to start for Miami. It's it, We see it with the quarterbacks more so because that's the, the marquee position. Right. But is this waiver process being watered down and dumbed down over the past couple of years to the point where pretty soon they're just going to get rid of the rule where you have to sit out anyway when you transfer? Well, I think it's definitely becoming um, the tail wagging the dog. I mean, you know, it's, it is a little bit of, okay, I'm, you know, star quarterback. I'm going to go somewhere, and if I don't win the job, I'm going somewhere else. And not only do you have that, but you have other schools that are aware of a said quarterback not winning the job. So, hey, we don't, we're not in a good quarterback situation. Let's start recruiting them off that school. So it is. And that's a little gone. shady business yeah, going on there because yeah. Tate Martell is sitting here and, and he's the backup to Dwayne Haskins. He gets a couple of possessions and he shows what he can do. He shows his athleticism. The Justin Fields story comes out that he's thinking about going to Ohio State. And here you have Miami going, look, Malik Rozier's gone. So mm-hmm. we have a void at the starting quarterback position. Your boy from high school is playing for us and is going to be our starting X wide receiver. Don't you want to pair up with your boy and and try to make some magic happen down here in South Florida? And so the recruiting process begins all over again. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's frustrating a little bit because this is not a surprise what did anybody think was going to happen when they allow transfers? I mean, you're going to get people that are going to recruit these kids, going to kind of sell them on the idea because people will miss on recruiting and then they will go out and try to fill those needs, whether it's a, a starter, whether it's a backup, even a place like Alabama tried to get our Gunnar Minshaw last year as a backup and kind of had him in a, hey, you can be a backup here and we promise you a graduate assistant job once you graduate. I mean, that was the deal they had planned until he went to to Washington State and I was in this draft process. So I think that uh, these are the unintended consequences that people that really earn these decisions are often made by non-football people and it leads to decisions that provide some chaos. And look, whatever rule you're going to make, coaches are going to figure out the best way to go about it and the best way to figure out how can we maximize it? And as I said before, it is an avenue for a program that does not do a good job of identifying or recruiting players at any position. It gives them an up, another bite at the apple to go and say, I'm going to go get a transfer. I'm going to get go get a Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow may end up being the best quarterback that LSU's had in several years. And they didn't, <laughs> he didn't recruited anybody. Mm-hmm. They hadn't developed anybody. He's a kid that's a transfer, and we're seeing that more and more. And it is it is the more newsworthy at the quarterback position, but it is happening quite frankly at other position, uh, quite frequently at other positions as well. So um, it is going to continue um, as long as the rule is what it is. I think that there's a lot of the NCAA is they're dealing with a lot of negativity. You don't pay anybody. There's all these money. These kids don't get paid. And, you know, so I think it's almost like, well, we'll throw them a bone, allow them to transfer. Um, and, and I think what it's done, it's created a chaotic situation, a great news cycle situation yep. for people that get excited about it and this and that. But you know what? How good is it? I, I preach about this in NFL free agency. 
there's an, a, an, an adjustment period that takes place very often that even when you're talking about pro players and they're signing for big contracts and they're coming over, look at the history of guys having the impact in their first year. It's few and far between. That is normally the case with college guys that transfer. There is going to be an adjustment factor. So, listen, I, I think it depends upon how many years the guy has left. If he has a couple of years, you might get one good year out of him, and anything else is a bonus. But it's it's here to stay. You know, as long as this rule is going to be, this is the way it's going to be handled. Let's get to our state of the program because there's some news with our team of the week. What's going on at your favorite school? This is State of the Program on Rush the Field. Our featured team is the LSU Tigers this week. And Chris, before we get into the history of this program, there's some news as it appears that Ed Orgeron is in line for a two-year extension and possibly a pay raise. This was a proposal that was published when the uh, Board of Regents, I guess, uh, had their meeting, and now it's been made public because everything gets made public these days. So, and oh, deserving of a raise based off last season? I think so. Well, I think what it is, it is kind of the preemptive strike of making sure that your guy has a contract that helps him in recruiting. And I, I think it maybe is a little premature. I think it's probably unnecessary to give him the raise. Um, did he have a good year last year? Yes. Uh, if you're just looking at productivity, would you like to see him do it again this year before you make that commitment? After all, they had to pay off before he took the Kansas job quite a bit of money to less miles. So I don't know how smart it is, um, but certainly I understand what they're doing. They're making sure that they are sending a message, a clear message to, in the recruiting world that Ed Orgeron's our guy. We all know that, you know, a couple of subpar years and that that's all out the window and it's going to be very costly for LSU. But um, happy for Ed and it will be, you know, a raise. Remember, he didn't make a whole lot of money to begin with, and he has got an assistant coach, a coordinator in Dave Aranda, that's approaching what he's making as a head coach. So, so I do think in that respect, it makes some sense, whether it's a long-range commitment. We all know there are no such thing as long-range commitments in college football. It's about how you produce. Well, let's get into the history of this fine program, which dates all the way back to the 1800s. This is one of the premier programs in the South. We're talking about the LSU Tigers here. And in a place where, you know, if you're just a traditionalist when it comes to football, I'm not so sure you'd think of Louisiana. You know, I think people think, Texas. People mm -hmm. think, you know, Oklahoma, you know, certainly South Florida came up uh, late, you know, in the more modern era with the population boom and the athletes that come from there. But Louisiana as a hotbed of football, I'm not sure a lot of people would think about it, but this school has a rich tradition. It does. And the state is very, very rich in terms of high school football, the quality of high school football. It is the only big time program in the state of Louisiana. When the program had success um, in college football in the 50s and 60s, Tulane had a really good program. Tulane was once, along with Georgia Tech, in the Southeastern Conference. Um, we know that's the Tulane made a, a different turn and 
um, as did Georgia Tech, but particularly did Tulane. And and LSU's the only program, the only big time program in the state. So it's a little bit different than some of the Mississippis, the Texases, the Floridas, the Alabamas that have multiple programs. And there are more players in the NFL per capita from the state of Louisiana than any other state in the country. So it, there's a lot of good talent. And we'll get into how that really kind of contributed to getting Nick Saban excited about this job. But it's it's at the 12th. LSU's got 12 most victories in NCAA football um, uh, history. Um, it did start in the 1800s, and the first game was 1893. They lost that rival game to Tulane. And for those that have been on the LSU campus – they uh, certainly know of Colts Hall. I took classes at Colts Hall. <laughs> the first coach was a university professor, as it was in those days, Charles Coates, Dr. Charles e., uh, e. Coates. And as I'm doing this podcast, I'm looking to my left at a 8 by 10 photo that Scott is so gray and old that you it's really hard to see it. But it is a picture of Dr. Charles E. Coates. And it looks like well, it looks like a family reunion picture instead of a team <laughs> picture because it's just, first of all, guys, they're not really in pads. They're looking like some bad wool-looking outfits and yeah. some bad-looking sweaters, <laughs> and there are not many of them. And that's the first LSU football team. Um, and the, the there was a, um, a one of the first good players for his team that became a coach was Ruffin G. Pleasant. He was a quarterback and captain of that first LSU team. He became governor of Louisiana. And and so the, the history was really good early, and they built the program. And, you know, they first played in the state fairgrounds, and then they moved into Tiger Stadium. Tiger Stadium, which now holds over 100,000 seats, started with 12,000. When you think about some of the great architectures, you know, most do it in a way – in probably the more prudent way, and they tear down these old pro stadiums and build a new one. But when you have old historic stadiums like Tiger Stadiums, it's pretty difficult. You can't really do that. I mean, just the the whole what it means and where it's located, the sovereign ground that it's upon. You talk about more expensive and talk about difficult to make the infrastructure of a stadium that was built in the twenties, wow. you know, uh, you know, modern, I mean, and they not only expanded from 12 to 28 to 35, you know, to 45 to 55. And it was 78,000 for years and years. And it, but you got to do all the plumbing and read it very, very difficult. So, um, LSU, in 1907 became the first American college football team to play on foreign soil in the Bacardi Bowl against the University of Havana on Christmas Day. LSU won 56-0 at that time. The real uh, impetus for the, the start of the program, though, was the uh, Bernie Moore era. And Bernie Moore is where the, the track stadium, which is a renowned track program, is named after him. That's where they won their first SEC championship. They finished with a 5-0 and record and a 9-2-0 and overall record, 1935. They played in their first Sugar Bowl game um, against TCU, and they lost to TCU 3-2. to Yes, 3-2 to at Tulane <laughs> Stadium at that time. And um, the 46 team was one of the more notable you know, games, the Cotton Bowl Classic, because it was the ice bowl. Bernie Moore was the coach, and there was a quarterback there by the name of Y.A. Tittle. Yep. Ibrahim uh, Aranis uh, Tittle. Uh, they played in that game against Arkansas, a 9-1 game. There was ice and sleet and snow, and no, they didn't have 
the ability to clean the fields like they did then. And I've seen tapes of the game, and it was just like a it's a little bit combination of hockey and, and football <laughs> because there's a lot of sliding. And and the the next era that became the great era was the Paul Dietzel era. Um, he came in in 1955, um, and he came up with something that was unique. It was the first platoon system which was you had players playing both ways at that time. And in 1958, he had a three-platoon system, and I still have these pictures up right now in my office too. Instead of replacing individual players during the game, Scott, he would bring in an entirely new set of players between plays and series. They were called the white team, white jerseys in practice. There was a first-string offense and defense. The go team, G-O team, was the second-string offense and the Chinese Bandits, which is a second-string defense. And the Chinese Bandits was taken from a cartoon, which I confess I've never heard of, but <laughs> it was the Chinese Bandits, was a cartoon back in those days, and they were the fiercest, most just doggoning it people. And so they were named the the Chinese Bandits. And it, it led to um, a really successful season, and they claimed their first national championship in 1959, beat Clemson 7-0 and in the Sugar Bowl. And um, playing in that game was the great Billy Cannon, who's the only uh, Heisman Trophy Heisman, winner yep. in, in yep. LSU history in 1959. The most famous play was, and it's still played, just to give you an idea of the history. It took place in, in 1959 on Halloween night. Number one, LSU. Number three, Ole Miss. LSU was trailing 3 nothing. And then there's a punt to Billy Cannon. He runs it back 89 yards for a touchdown. He breaks seven tackles. <laughs> and this, this was known as the Cannon Halloween run. And the Rebels, many people forget this, drove all the way down the field to the one-yard line. And LSU put a goal line stand. And they won the game. LSU did 7-3 in Tiger Stadium. But that play, even to this day, um, has been re- – it's replayed every Halloween time around LSU and it's funny because they have the old video with the whole um, uh, broadcast and you'll love this being a great broadcaster is the guy the old guy a, a great guy named JC Polich was doing the, the broadcast at that time and they used to you know how they used to have the artificial you know piping of the sound yes you know and uh, so he so he's he's calling his call and he piped up the the sound of the crowd and it's like his call was just went like muffled for like five or six seconds and then he's just he's kind of screaming the great all-american billy cannon <laughs> so it has become lore um uh, among lures well paul Dito and i can remember this to this day um not that i was around when it happened but Paul Dietzel, he was known, he was a young guy, he was called Pepsodent Paul. Uh, Pepsodent was a great uh, um, toothpaste commercial, and and he had a great toothy smile. They (laughs) called him Pepsodent Paul Dietzel, and he vowed that he would never leave LSU, and uh, well, you never say never. Yep. Because he left to go to West Point, which at that time was the Shangri-La. Uh, you left there. They were, you know, a power. And, and I can remember to this day, my dad and people of his age, never forgiving Paul Dietzel. Even though Paul Dietzel came back as athletic director at LSU, never forget because he left LSU to go to, to Army. So even back in the day when you didn't have the media, you, people still talked about it and took it like a personal affront. Charlie McClendon 
uh, an assistant on Paul Dietzel's staff takes over and does a really good job. And 66 Cotton Bowl, uh, LSU upset an undefeated and number two ranked Arkansas. So the program was in great shape, did a great job, 1972 game against Ole Miss, and this part of the Ole Miss-LSU rivalry. LSU, with quarterback Burt Jones, they completes a pass from Burt Jones to Brad Davis. But what's interesting about it, the Tigers trailed the Rebels 16-10 to 10 with four seconds to play. There was a long, I mean a lengthy, incomplete pass by Jones. It was in Baton Rouge, and the game clock showed one second remaining. <laughs> it's probably about eight seconds that should have run <laughs> off. There was one second remaining. And then the one second left was the last play that uh, that Jones hit Brad Davis and LSU won 17-16. There was a song written about it, and it was so contentious that at the state line as you left Mississippi, the, the Mississippi, uh, uh, the, the state legislature put up a sign you are now entering Louisiana. Set your clocks back four seconds. Oh, that's great. That <laughs> is great. great. So, so it's great stuff. <laughs> Charlie Mack had a great team in 1969. Probably should have gone um, and, and should have played the Cotton Bowl that year. Uh, what was unique, Notre Dame never played in bowl games. And this was the first time they decided to play in a bowl game. So that was a team that was a national championship caliber team that just got left out holding the bag. Co- Coach Mack had a great career, 62 to 79. He was an assistant. Uh, excuse me. He played for Bear Bryant at Kentucky and did a great job. Unfortunately, much maybe like Les Miles, Charlie Mack couldn't beat Bear Bryant in Alabama. Well, who could? I mean, he just yeah. didn't have success. And they eventually kind of forced him out to retirement, and he retired in 1979. 1979, they played number one Alabama off their heels. They played USC, a great John Robinson coach USC team, with Charles White and Brad Buddy and uh, Bruce Matthews. I mean, they were loaded. And LSU had them beat in the controversial face mask call that allowed USC another chance. They won the game. This was in Charlie Mack's last year. And it, it was ironic because even though the season was in play, it, everyone knew that Charlie Mack was retiring at the end of the year. And they had already struck a deal for the new replacement. They didn't wait back then. They hired to be the next coach at LSU, the next brightest young assistant in the country, a Woody Hayes disciple at Ohio State, who's the head coach at North Carolina State by the name of Bo Ryan. So – Charlie Mack finishes his uh, sees his career. He plays in the Tangerine Bowl against Wake Forest in his last game. Bo Ryan is hired as a head coach at LSU. He again is, it, it, I mean, he's thirty, you know, like thirty eight years old. I mean, just young. Uh, actually, I think a little bit younger, like thirty four, thirty five. So young guy, great coach, did a great job at NC State, turning that program around, puts his staff together. And he's on the job for one month. Tragically, as he is in Shreveport, Louisiana, on a um, recruiting trip on a private plane by the Tiger Athletic Foundation, um, there's bad weather. He's got to fly back home to New Orleans. Well, he's going to fly, excuse me, he's going to not going to bypass Baton Rouge to go to New Orleans because that's where the coaching convention was. And so the, the pilot 
had to take a different detour route because the weather was bad. So as pilots do, they tend to go around and go up. So they went north to kind of circle around and come back. Tragically, the the plane uh, was lost and they they lost sight of it. They had a Air Force reconnaissance plane, two of them, one of them that followed them for a long way and a second one that was called in as the first one was starting to lose fuel and they fired, uh, uh, followed them. The plane, it veered off course. The, I remember distinctly that the, the indications were the air force or reconnaissance plane got close enough to see the pilot and that the, they had lost uh, air pressure and they had obviously perished and lost oxygen. And so the plane was just going out into the Atlantic ocean and they followed it until it hit the Atlantic Ocean, and they searched and searched and never found the plane or the remains of the pilot, Lewis Ben Scotter. I can still remember his name, and Coach Bo Ryan. So, tragically, Bo Ryan, his family had not moved from North Carolina to LSU yet. Young girl, two girls, and his wife. And, and he never coached a game, and he is gone. It was a tragic, solemn event, uh, as you can imagine. And I remember that very, very vividly, how we were all shaken. The, the eerie thing that I, I, I can't quite explain this, and I don't, know, I don't know what it means. I don't know that it means anything. But the last spot in which that plane, before it went into the Atlantic Ocean, the last spot that it crossed was Raleigh, North Carolina which was where his wife and his daughter were still living. Mm. So, I mean, so, I mean, can you imagine, you know, you're Shreveport to go to New Orleans and you turn around, what are the odds that the plane veers off, but it veers directly over where his wife and his daughter are still are. And, and needless that they know that 38,000 feet in the air, there yeah. he was perishing. Just an eerie thing that I, I don't know. It just gives me goosebumps when I think about it. So they're in a, obviously in a tragic situation. There's a coaching staff there. Um, recruiting has taken place. What do they do? Uh, at that time, the athletic director, Paul Dietz, had come back. They're not quite sure what to do. And they didn't feel like anybody on the staff was where they wanted to go. So they did something a little bit unusual. They named Jerry Stovall, who was a LSU All-American running back, um, had a little coaching experience at LSU, but was running the, what was called the L club, uh, a, a, um, a, 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 a function of LSU athletics and fundraising. They put him in the head coaching role and with this, with Bo Ryan staff that didn't go all that well. Uh, he fired a number of staff members the year later, you know, and then he brought in other people and Jerry Stovall was known as a guy that could recruit very well, but the team was not, producing all that well on the field, uh, got out playing bowl games, kind of underachieved in some games. And then came the hiring of a new athletic director. Bob Broadhead had come over from an administrative position with the Dolphins, and he brings with him Bill Orangeberger as the head coach at LSU. Uh, 57 years old, uh, gruff, tough to work for. I speak for firsthand. I worked for him and was a brilliant football coach, uh, really got a lot out of his players, wasn't a great recruiter. But, <clears throat> pardon me, 
was the inventor of the 3-4 defense with the Dolphins, a no-name defense in Miami for Shula, and did a really good job until he decided um, after a few years to go to Florida as the athletic director. And then there's a promotion of Mike Archer as the head coach. Mike Archer was the defensive coordinator on the staff at the time. They promoted him. And Steve Spurrier at the time, Mike Shanahan at the time were all interested in the job, but they promoted Mike Archer instead. Mike had some early success, but really couldn't sustain it. Then they hired what was undoubtedly the worst coach in LSU football history in Curly Hallman, who was an absolute disaster. And then at the time when uh, they were going to make the move from Curly Hallman I had moved on and was on Bill Belichick's staff in Cleveland working with a guy by the name of Nick Saban. I told the policy. What year year was this now? This would have been like 1992. Okay. Okay. So I'm, you know, they they were trying to, Curly spent a couple more years. So 93. And then um, at the time I thought they were going to, let Curly go, and they, they kept him for one extra year. I, I They were thinking about making a move, and they were talking to different people, and I recommended highly Nick Saban. Um, Nick was at least uh, behind the scenes a candidate to become the Ohio State head coach when John Cooper was there, and John Cooper was always on the hot seat. And he was, you know, every year he's this, he's, that's it. He's gone and then he survived one more year. And, and, and so he was a candidate there. So I'm wanting to recommend that they hire Nick and bring him in. Nick was not as well known. LSU was not paying much money at that time. Not many people were. And so anyway, they stayed with Curly one more year. They ended up making a move. I again tried to get them to make a move and what had what to to Nick. They didn't want to spend the money. They didn't quite, you know, buy into it. They wanted somebody that was a standing head coach. So they hired. Not many people know this. They offered a job and the job was accepted by Pat Sullivan, the head coach at TCU. They announced a press conference. It was going to be on a Tuesday, and all of a sudden, just to tell you how embarrassing things were administratively on both sides. They couldn't agree on a $750,000 buyout. Pat <laughs> thought LSU was going to take care of it. LSU thought Pat was going to take care of it. They canceled the press conference. And instead of going with Nick Saban, they decided, well, when they, when they broke ties with Pat Sullivan, they kind of went in a panic. And they went to Nashville and hired Jerry Donato as their head coach. And so and that, so, and, and what year was that? 1995 Donato comes so in. So then that. So, but that's the year that Saban went to Michigan State. So Saban, Saban, we we ended up. um, He had connections at Michigan State, and he got the job at Michigan State. So at this point, and by the way, he had some opportunities in the NFL, and when he went to Michigan State, he was an assistant coach for Michigan State under George Perlis. He got the job, um, went to Michigan State. Correct, right at this time. Um, in fact, Jerry Donato's first bowl game, he ends up playing Michigan State <laughs> in, in, in Nick Saban in that bowl game. <clears throat> but so Donato's there from 95 to 99, and Jerry did some good things, but very inconsistent. And it was at this time 
my good friend, Joe Dean, who was the athletic director, who I loved him, but was um, threw around quarters like they were manhole covers. I mean, he was cheap. Yeah. And at this point, when they let Jerry DiNardo go, there was a new chancellor at LSU by the name of Mark Emmert. Mark Emmert, who's now the head of the NCAA. Yep understood the importance of making a really good hire and understanding that, as he put it, his words, not mine, football is the front porch of your university, particularly in the Deep South. And this was the key to getting people to give money for the university, for the chemistry lab and all that. It's through football, believe it or not. So he was wanting to spend it. Well, it's at this point, um, I talked with him and um, there, there was a a booster there that since passed away that 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 I was involved with and started to again talk to him about Nick Saban and I said look you don't need to take my word for it let me give you some people in the league and they start doing their homework and they start checking out well at this point Nick wasn't all that interested and you know then it became I had to convince Nick that this was the right place and I'm going to go back to what we just said I talked to him because at Michigan State, didn't matter how good he was, and Mark D'Antonio can tell you this right now. It's still about what Michigan is or what Michigan isn't. Michigan State, I'm sorry if you're a Spartan fan, close your ears. You're always kind of considered a little brother, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you're better than big brother a lot of times on the football field. And Nick always knew that it was always UM this and UM that. And, and and, and, And one thing I talked about, you are the king of Louisiana when you go to LSU. And there are more players per capita in the state. I put together some stuff for him, more importantly, for Jimmy Sexton, his agent. He started to really think about it. He did his homework. It. I don't think I would have been able to convince him to do it until I had him talk to Bill Orangebarger. Nick Saban didn't know Bill Orangebarger, and Bill didn't know Nick Saban. They, they, they didn't. Their paths didn't cross. Bill was a little older coach. And that's that. And I knew what Coach Orangebarger thought about LSU, and he talked up the job. And Nick, even though he didn't know Orangebarger, he knew who he was. Mm -hmm. And I think that to this day, that's when the next conversation when Nick called me, that's when I knew that we were on to something, that he was really interested. And at this point, he was at Michigan State. The Giants tried to hire Nick Saban. The Colts tried to hire Nick Saban. So his name became a little bit more known. So as it is the case with a lot of these administrators, it it sounds a little sexier now. Nick Saban is sounding a little sexier now. So as it were, uh, Nick Saban ends up getting the deal done. And I remember to this day, um, he got paid $1.2 million. And that was the highest salary for a head coach in college football history. 1.2 a year in 2000 when Nick Saban got the LSU job. And then as the rest they say is history, he immediately began to turn that program around. He built a powerhouse program. He built a program that won a national title. He took LSU in a place that I've always thought, Nick, here's the thing that Nick always told me. If it's such a good place, why do they keep firing coaches left and right? I said, Nick, because they haven't found the right guy. That's right. And they haven't found the right guy to put a fence around the state where all the talent is. And I said, you do that, you're gold. Because you don't have anybody else coming in at this point. The only people coming into Louisiana are people from out of state. 
You're not don't have anybody in state. You can sell that. That's the difference. And you've got to make a commitment. I told him, don't take the job unless they make the facility upgrades commitments to you. He went in with a legal pad full of stuff <laughs> with Mark Emmert, and he said, I want my own football operations center. I want a new facility for the players to live in because I told him Bruce Hart Hall was a dump. And, you know, in a way, everything. Uh, Emmert said, absolutely, we need to do that anyway. We're doing it. And so those things were put in place. The infrastructure was in place. Now all of a sudden you've got much better facilities. Um, Things are working, you know, better. And the rest, as they say, is history. He moves on. Now here's what really happened in the he spends there, obviously, in 2004. He was quartered for a few jobs in the NFL. Bears made a strong run at him. He wasn't going to leave there after 2003. What happened is we all know he went to Miami. Now, I knew the president of the Dolphins very well. He was a former LSU guy. And I kind of got caught in the middle because it's my school. It's LSU. Nick, I think they wanted Nick. Nick had an, in- an inkling to go to the NFL. But here's the thing that I don't think has ever been talked about, and I will say here for the first time. When Mark Emmert left LSU to go to his home in Washington, um, University of Washington, to be the president of Washington, when Nick Saban was at LSU, there was an athletic director, first Joe Dean, then the base, the ex-baseball coach, Skip Ertman. Nick Saban had a direct line to the chancellor, Mark Emmert. He didn't get all – the chancellor told the athletic director, you need to do this, this, and this. Nick worked directly with the chancellor, and he got everything he wanted. When Mark Emmert left, the job wasn't quite the same for him. He wasn't able to get quite the things to do as organized. Emmert was the guy. Nabin was the rough. Saban was the rough edge guy, and Emmert was the guy that was everybody's boss that could find a way to get things done, and he could stroke the right people to get the money to get it done. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So he did it, but once he left then the, the clock started to tick that he was going to leave. So I knew he was going to leave. It needed to be in the right situation. Wayne Heisengel's coach of the Dolphins at that time, he looked at that situation. Um, he didn't he, – he, he kind of turned him down the first time. The second time, Wayne Heisengel flew his jet right into Baton Rouge and set it on a parkway, and that's how they consummated the deal. <laughs> in his jet – And he did something Saban had complete control over personnel. Saban could hire two coaches for every position. He could hire a defensive line coach and an assistant defensive line coach, a linebacker coach, an assistant linebacker coach, so on and so forth. So he had everything he wanted. He did that, and of course, we all know not to take this to the Nick Saban turn. He ended up, uh, because his wife Terry wanted to get back in college, ended up going to Alabama. Nick leaves. The program's in great shape. Um, I wanted to get them to hire Butch Davis, who I thought was a really good fit. But Butch had sat out after with the with the situation with the Browns, had some heart issues. Uh, there were a few different directions I wanted to go. They decided to go with Les Miles, who I thought was a solid hire, not a great one. And Les Miles did a nice job. Um, the program may have slipped a little from where Nick Saban had it, but not a lot. And most coaches would have not been as successful as he was. He did a really good job. Well, can, he, I, can, I, can I throw this yes, out there? That absolutely. A big reason why 
there was this drop off was because Nick Saban was at Alabama. And so he's in the conference. He's back in college football. Everything that he was building at LSU, he built bigger and stronger at Alabama. And so if you're LSU and you're Les Miles, you're sitting here going, well, now we have to try to maintain what we were doing and try to keep this thing improving. But now we're battling against this guy and it makes things more difficult. That's absolutely correct. Because when he got there, when Les got the job, when he first got the job, well, Nick's in the NFL. Yes. So he's having success. But, you know, he's not having optimal success. But you're right. Doing it against Mike Shula is one thing. And then. You know, Nick comes in, the worst thing that could ever happen. Oh, and by the way, sorry to interrupt, but also at that time, you're also talking about Urban Meyer's Florida schools, Florida teams. So you're talking about about the Tebow years. And so the the competition in the SEC in those first couple of years or so for Les Miles, they didn't do him any favors, you know? No, no. (laughs) Listen, the worst thing that happened to Les – was the fact that Nick Saban came back in his own league at a place that has more financial resources than he had at LSU. No question about it. And Saban's a better coach and a better recruiter and and a better coach than he is. I mean, you just call it what it is. You can say one player is better than the other. Or just there's some coaches are better than the other. And that that's just the reality. So Les did a good job. But as you mentioned, as he got a little bit into his tenure and Saban gets into Alabama, well, then that's where, that's where it became – Alabama, Alabama, and then LSU, by comparison, got it slipped and slipped. Well, here's the thing that people may not know is Les Miles and the athletic director, Joe Oliva, did not get along. And so there was a, you know, a, a desire to move him out is, is several years. But Les always kind of survived well enough. And then, of course, we all know how this played out. In September of 2016, Miles was fired after losing to Auburn, and then Ed Orgeron has been promoted, and here's where we are. So, um, ironically, you got a a, a a pure Cajun boy that Ed Orgeron actually went to LSU, spent a little bit of time there, um, and was as a defensive lineman, and, and and decided to go to Northeast Louisiana, which is now Louisiana Monroe. It uh, a better playing opportunity there, but here's a uh, in the in, in the uh, uh, swamps of uh, Louisiana and South Louisiana is where he's from. And obviously mm-hmm. people know him very affectionately. But that kind of takes us to where we are. And this is where Ed Orgeron is. And, uh, you know, where if we all know that they hired Ed Orgeron after striking out on Jimbo Fisher twice and they made a run at Tom Herman um, and they decided to go with Ed Orgeron after getting turned down as I think they got really, you know, embarrassed by, you know, getting turned down. And again, this was part of it administratively how you need to hold in there. But if you look at it now, you know, you've got a, uh, a Cajun guy, you know, coaching the ultimate Cajun team. And <laughs> you mentioned get, getting, uh, uh, getting set for a new extension. What does it mean? He's still in the West. Um, the difficulty that Ed's going to have is he's got, and Nick Saban, who's still there at Alabama with more resources, better coach than he is. You've got Texas A&M Jimbo Fisher, better coach than he is. Um, you know, you got two programs that 
you can look at the future and say those two programs are probably going to be in better shape than LSU. Now, we don't know what Auburn's going to do. We'll see where they can go. But I, I think that's that's going to be the challenge that, that Ed's going to have is, you know, he can do a good job, but he may end up finishing third in the West. And if that happens, that's not going to be perceived as good enough. And we're going to see what LSU does then. And then, of course, this brings about a whole different conversation about LSU athletics because now you've got another controversy going on with a major brouhaha with the basketball coach, yep, Will Wade. Will Wade yep. uh, and, you know, uh, Joe Oliva, who's the athletic director, not very popular and how he's handled things. He's kind of botched up the last coaching hires. He's, this is like his third basketball coach he's hired. I mean, none of the coaches he's hired has ever worked. Will Wade is the best hire he's ever had. And now this is blown up in his face. So this has not worked out well. So the whole question is, is Joe Oliva going to be around the hire of the next football coach? Mm-hmm. When will that be? How long can Ed stay? A lot of interesting questions. But if you look back at the history, you know, who are the best coaches? Well, I think Nick Saban's the best coach in LSU history. Charlie Mack certainly has been there the longest. Paul Dietzel is certainly great. My favorite all-time player is Tommy Casanova. Uh, that's that's the jersey number that I picked as a player um, because he wore 37. He was a played safety and corner um, at LSU. He's a great punt returner. So um, you know, but there's so many great players, so many All-Americans. Um, so many great players, so many ton of N- a ton of NFL talent, including uh, the top two wide receivers right now in the Cleveland Browns in Odell Absolutely. Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 and just some unique situations that we have at LSU, too. Um, we, we have an unusual situation. We have an H style goalpost, you know, where most goalposts, they have the, you know, the one bar leading up to the mm-hmm. to the crossbar on the upright. You've got the H style. Why is it? Because that's the way it was in the old days. You ran through the goalposts coming out of the tunnel. Yep. So they added that back. And it was kind of a LSU's only one of two schools that wear white jerseys as a home at uniform. At home, yeah. You know who the other is? Uh, white at home would be, oh, I'm going to get this. Hang on. White Penn State. No. No, Georgia no, Tech. no. Oh, Georgia, yeah, Penn State. Well, I just it. gave you a Georgia. Well, yeah, yeah well, Penn, uh, well, you know what I'm thinking? Sometimes they do a whiteout. Yes, in yes, Penn they State, do. But that's not, yeah, obviously the that's traditional the, the, blue uniform. Correct. So yeah. Georgia Tech wore white uniforms first at home. And Paul Dietzel took his team to Georgia Tech and was, you know, was forced to wear the, the and said, hey, we're going to make, you know, white our home uniforms. Well, the NCAA changed the rules and made you wear dark uniforms at home for years. And so my entire coaching career at LSU, we had to wear purple at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jerry Donato petitioned and got the rule changed that if you're the home team, if you notify the road team enough that yeah. you want to wear this, blah, blah, blah. So that's it. So well, the other, the, the other answer would have been the Dallas Cowboys. Now, um, other thing that's a little bit interesting about, you know, you got night games in Tiger stadium. Uh, it's an interesting fact of how that took place. It was originally done. Because it is a heavy populated uh, number of sugarcane farmers in South Louisiana. And grinding season where they harvest the sugarcane and grind it up in the mills was in the fall. And it started like October number. So what they did was you'd obviously do that during the day while daylight. And it gave a lot of those people a chance to go to the football games at night. And there was 
Huey P. Long, which is the most – all the king's men, if you ever watch that uh, movie, it's about the political powers that be in the state of Louisiana, which is in and of itself a, a, a whole podcast. He he was very instrumental in LSU football. He started the LSU band, the Golden Band from Tigerland. Back in the 30s and 40s, when kids would go on recruiting visits, they would eat dinner at the governor's mansion with the governor. That's how it was done back then. And at that time, it was there was something called the um, you, you've probably heard about this, but um, P.T. Barnum, uh, the, the, the circus. Yep. You know, the circus comes to town. Well, that was a big thing back in the 30s and 40s. Traveling circuses. They go all around the country and it was really big. Well, they had the circus that was coming in into Louisiana and UEP Long, the governor of Louisiana, said, um, I'm going to ask you a favor. Do not come in on Saturday night when we play a home game. And, you know, and they said no. He asked them again. They said no. So what Huey P. Long did was he had his uh, uh, brightest and finest wait <laughs> at the state line. And when the circus came to town, the good old-fashioned Louisiana State Police stopped him and searched him just long enough that they just couldn't make it in time to, <laughs> to infringe in the Saturday night football games. How about the five-yard lines? What do I mean by that? You ever notice – Football stadiums have the 10 and the 20 marked. Yep. Watch LSU football games and notice it the next time. Every five yards. The five, the 15, the 25, uh, it's all that's interesting. So it's interesting things. Tailgatings, the pregame show, all that's uh, interesting. So a lot of great tradition. I have gone embarrassingly too long on this, as you might tell by now. <laughs> uh, I grew up in the shadows of Tiger Stadium. Went to games at Tiger Stadium as a kid um, with my parents and saw many great games before you had games on TV. And so I've seen – I've met the great – the Ken Kavanaugh's in 1939, great Giants player, Billy Cannon, the great Jerry Stovall, Mike Anderson, who, by the way, if you come into Baton Rouge, you want to eat at his restaurant, great seafood restaurant. The Tommy Casanovas, who, by the way, is a doctor. The great Charles Alexander, a good friend of mine, and Nacho Albergama, who's an orthopedic surgeon, and you know, on and on and on. There are three retired numbers, 20, Billy Cannon, 21, Jerry Stovall, and 37, Dr. Tommy Casanova. But Steve Van Buren in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Wyatt Tittle in the Hall of Fame, Jim Taylor, who we lost recently in the Hall of Fame, so many great – Gaynell Tinsley was a player that played in the 30s that my daddy saw. Abe Michael, Doc Fenton, um, on and on and on. Great, great players, great coaches, great history, and the passion. Uh, people think all year long about LSU football in Louisiana. It's what they think about. Spring practice has gone on. That's the number one thing. They People plan weddings around, you know, <laughs> making sure yeah. that they don't get married in the fall. Because no one in their family is going to show up if you've got a wedding in the fall. You know, we the secretary's biggest phone calls that they got from the public in our office would be, you know, hey, uh, two years from now, you know, what, um, you, you know, home game on uh, what October? No, we won't be home. People are planning their weddings. That's about as serious as can be, and uh, it, it, the whole. Um, atmosphere around campus just revolves around LSU football. Tailgating starts on Monday and Tuesday of the week before. 
with the Winnebago's and the cooking of the jambalaya and the gumbo and the boudin, everything that the red beans and rice, it is a feast unlike any other. And they'll feed you. You'll have you'll get the warmest welcome you'll ever have. They'll feed you until you pop, mm. and then they'll holler tiger bait, tiger bait the whole time there. So it is a great place to be, and it is absolutely a bucket list if you're a college football fan. Well, we can just hear the passion in your voice, Chris, talking about the history of the LSU Tigers football program. That was our state of the program for this week here on Rush the Field. Next week, another school with a heck of a heck of a history, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And, you know, it's a busy time, Chris. It's scouting season. LandryFootball.com is where you got to be because all of this free agency stuff, which we just went through in the NFL, but the draft stuff that's coming up is really what you have to be locked into as a football fan. So we go to LandryFootball.com. We're getting everything right up to the to, to the day of the NFL draft, right? Ab- absolutely. Our notebooks, latest from the film room, the pro days, everything in our draft notebooks, our free agent notebooks, what's going on. Player signings today. We've got some trade talks, some visits. We're keeping you update on that every day in our notebooks. Uh, minute by minute on Twitter at Landry Football, you can follow that. And, uh, yes, we've got our, our free agent boards, position by position boards in the NFL, how players graded this year, so you know how what the quality level of the player is that your team is signing or letting go or what have you. And as we speak, I am working on the draft boards. And it will be out this week. So look for the initial draft boards. We're going to have scouting reports as well. But the initial draft boards, as we get done with this podcast, I'm going back working on it <laughs> because we're, we're knocking it out. We take take this very seriously, do this for a lot of teams. But, but this will give a generic overview of kind of everybody. Everybody's draft boards are going to look a little different depending upon their philosophy and um you know what their critical factors are for their relative positions but the the draft boards the top overall players and by position we'll be getting those out as well as the scouting report so listen if you like football you love landryfootball.com this is the busiest time of year we've got recruiting information we've got draft information we've got free agent information we've got draft boards i mean you name it it's just non-stop football and it'll continue that way and when we put the draft to bed and the second wave of free agency to bed then we'll be obviously breaking down all the rosters yep. in college spring practice going on in college football don't forget got our college football notebook track just our college football only fans so listen you like football you love landryfootball.com as i mentioned and as scott alluded to we got our scouting season special take advantage of it you get a full year at almost a 60 percent discount can't be better than that. Nope, less than a magazine subscription. Also, don't forget you catch new episodes of the Landry Football Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday, and new episodes of Rush the Field College Football Podcast every Wednesday. And sign up for the free War Room newsletter. You got to stay in the know. Enter your email at LandryFootball.com. You'll get the free War Room newsletter each and every week. It's a great tool to have for your football conversations. This is Rush the Field with Chris Landry and me, Scott Seidenberg, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Follow Chris on Twitter at LandryFootball. Follow me at Scott's On Air. Until next week, this is Rush the Field College Football Podcast. This 
This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles. Quick fix on Radio Influence. Looking back to this offseason with the Buccaneers, it started off really with a bang with Bruce Arians coming in here, uh, Todd Bowles, and they brought in Byron Leftwich, and they brought in a bunch of assistant coaches, and everybody was happy about the progress and where everybody was going. And uh, I don't know if people are quite as happy now with free agency and that first and second wave going and what the Bucks did and didn't do. If you look at what they've gained and lost, okay, uh, we, we are way behind the eight ball. I mean, it's not close. You brought in probably five or six guys that we're hoping can play better than they have. I mean, that's not what free agency is about. Free agency is about bringing somebody in and penciling them in and go, there you go, there's a player like JPP. That's, that's, that's a move. We, there's no, there's nobody changing anything uh, uh, for free agency. We're, we haven't changed anything. We've lost a lot. We lost Quan Alexander. That's a big deal, people. It's a big deal. Period. We lost Humphreys. You know, that was Jameis. You know, that was his go-to in the crunch. We lost him. We didn't replace him by then. We didn't replace him with anybody. So. To see other teams out there, championship teams, teams that are 10 and 6 and 11 and 5, getting better during free agency, and we're sitting and getting worse. Um, I mean, if you look at the way this team is constructed and you have to give Jason Light a grade, it's F. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.